so thankful for the faithfulness of our God, something that has really stood out as we've thought about the book of Joshua, think about God carrying out what he promises to do. God is God who upholds his word. He has done that and he will continue to do that. And we're going to continue to unpack that as we go throughout our study of Joshua here. But a big thanks to the uh, worship team for setting our hearts in the right place as we begin our meditation on God's word this morning. And we are indeed uh, back to our study of Joshua this morning, in particular Joshua 10, where we left off last week. Uh, If you uh, have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open there. If you don't have a copy, uh, two good-looking men are going to be making their way up the aisles, and uh, they would like to give you a Bible so you can follow along. So just hold your hand up, and they'll make sure that you uh, get one so you can follow along in our study this morning as we resume talking about Joshua 10. And as you're turning there, just a couple of things I wanted to mention. Uh, I want to echo what Tyson said about those of you who came out for the work day. That's one of my uh, favorite days every year, getting to work alongside uh, church members, uh, getting stuff done. Yesterday was a great day. I love watching uh, stuff that's accumulated get thrown out. It gives me great joy. And so I was thankful to be able to do that even alongside other people yesterday. So thank you for everybody who took part in that. Uh, It was a great, great morning. Uh, One other thing I just wanted to do while we uh, have a few minutes this morning as you're turning to Joshua 10 is I just wanted to provide a a brief update uh, for the church on where we're at in our uh, search for a pastor uh, of teaching and leadership I recognize it's been a little while since we've talked about that here as a church family, and I didn't want to keep you in the dark on that. Um, Just want to thank you for your your prayers and your patience over the last several months. It's, uh, as you know, a a really long, drawn-out process when you start talking about uh, fielding resumes, doing screening calls, uh, having people fill out applications, doing interviews. It, It takes a lot of time. Uh, on the part of the search team, on the part of the people who are applying. Uh, and that's not a process, as you can imagine, that you want to rush. Uh, it's something that requires a lot of due diligence on our part uh, because we love this church and we want to make sure that we're being uh, careful in that consideration. And so uh, our hope is to be able to provide a more extended update to the congregation at the upcoming congregational meeting on November the 12th. That's about three weeks away. Uh, That's not because we don't desire to share anything more. It's just that we want to be able to give you the time and uh, share a little bit more about the process. And uh, we are thankful that there has been some really good traction in recent weeks. And so our hope is that we might have some really exciting news to talk about at that meeting on the 12th. But um, we just want to make sure you know that we are aware that you're wondering and you're curious just as we are for who the Lord is leading to uh, fill this pulpit for the long term. And just know that we are praying, as we know you are, uh, for the Lord's hand in that process. So I bring that to you today just to keep it at our forefront and to ask you to keep praying uh, for the Lord's favor, his kindness in that process. Uh, It is, as we said, a a long and grueling one, but we are excited to see how the Lord uh, will continue to grow us through that. And the cool thing is, even as we look out over the last several months, it's been fun to just see how the Lord has been doing that, even in this interim season. So thank you for being a loving church, an encouraging church, uh, but of all, uh, above all, uh, a praying church. So please uh, keep, uh, keep praying. 
And it's with that in mind that I would like to just start out our time. Since we read through Joshua 10 a little bit last time, we're going to really jump into that study this morning. Um, and so I'm just going to launch right in. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask for God's favor, not only on our study, but also on our pastoral search. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we do come before you today with uh, humble hearts. Uh, first of all, asking for, uh, Lord, teachability this morning as we come to your word. Uh, we desire, again, to see you and your beauty and your power and all the complexities that go into your uh, divine nature that are on display for us to be able to see here. Uh, our prayer is not just that we would uh, see those things, that, but that we would know how to respond and live in light of those truths and those realities. So we pray for your kindness, uh, for your truth to fall on humble, teachable soil this morning, uh, that we may render to you the worship that you are certainly deserving of. And as we pray that, Lord, we also are mindful of the preaching and teaching ministry of this church, how significant it is. And so we are praying for your kindness on us as we continue to search for the man who will help really lead the direction of that for our church for years to come. Um, the good news is that even though we don't know who this man is quite yet, you do. You've been preparing him for this. And so uh, we just ask for your continued kindness uh, in that search process. Uh, for this man and for his family, whatever that might look like. We pray that you would make that abundantly clear to us. And uh, Lord, more than anything, I'm excited for this man to be able to uh, experience uh, the love and the teachability of this wonderful church family. I've been so blessed by them, Lord, and uh, just know that that will be a great encouragement to him as well. Um, and so, Lord, it's that very love and teachability that we uh, are looking for this morning again as we come to your word. So as we seek to continue unpacking uh, this message from Joshua, we pray that you uh, would help us uh, to see you uh, for the warrior God that you truly are. So bless our time now, we would ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the outset, we are going to return to our study of Joshua chapter 10 this morning. If you remember last week, we spent our time primarily unpacking uh, this story, mainly the battle that takes place between uh, Joshua and the five kings of the Amorites. And if you remember, this chapter ends with Israel emerging with complete control of the whole southern half of the land of Canaan. Now, this was not due to the strength or the wisdom of the Israelites themselves, but simply because, as we learn in verse 14 and verse 42, it was because the Lord, God of Israel, fought for Israel. And in fact, that was the driving force of last week's sermon, which helped remind us that when God fights for his people, the victory is certain. When God fights for his people, the victory is certain. And we want to resume that theme again this morning. And so what I'm going to do is just give a brief recap of last week, kind of go back through a, a big flyover picture of what we looked at last week. But then I want to spend the majority of our time considering what does that actually mean for us thousands of years later. How is it true that God still serves as a warrior who fights for his people even today? 
So let's do that real quick. Let's, let's do a flyover picture of chapter 10. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, or maybe if you were not here, this is a chance for you to get caught up to speed. But I want to begin in verses 1 through 5, where we saw the foolish opposition against God's people. And it was here in these verses that we saw how Israel's new alliance that they formed with the Gibeonites from back in chapter 9, uh, we begin to see how God's going to use that in the greater conquest of the land. Uh, but we saw that this new alliance, though foolish, uh, now created a great threat to the rest of the enemy forces in southern Canaan. We saw how the uh, king of Jerusalem was intimidated because of what the Lord was doing through this new alliance. He already knew what God and the, uh, or knew what uh, Israel and Joshua and their God were capable of, but now the Gibeonites, they're, they're warriors, they're fighters. And now they've aligned themselves with Joshua, and this is not looking good for them. And in fact, their, their uh, close proximity means that there's a lot for them to be concerned about. And so what the king of uh, Jerusalem does is he unites with these four other kings of the Amorites. They're in the southern region of Canaan, and they unite themselves in common enemy status against the Gibeonites, and they wage war upon the Gibeonites. And it's because of Gibeon's newfound allegiance with Israel that they send and ask for help from Joshua. And this is where we see in verses 6 through 15 the mighty hand of God displayed, the mighty display of God's power in verses 6 through 15. Uh, we see that Joshua and his uh, troops get word of this uh, battle being waged against the Gibeonites, and they prepare to head out, but as they do so, they don't go alone. They have the assurances that God is with them. Look at verse 8, where God speaks to Joshua, and he says, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so even before Joshua goes into combat this day, he has the assurances that God is with him and that the victory is secure. And we see how God delivers on his promise throughout this section. He strengthens the troops to march all through the night over 30 miles to get to Gibeon. And even there we see God throw the enemy forces into confusion. He begins tossing giant hailstones from heaven upon the enemy forces so that more died from the hailstones than they did in hand-to-hand -hand combats. And then we even see God doing something miraculous with nature, this miracle with the sun and the moon and in such a way that probably gave extra time and light to the Israelite forces so that they are able to have complete vengeance on these enemies within a lengthened, prolonged day. And according to verse 14, there was no day like it. Uh, this was a miraculous day in the history of God's people, especially in how God responded to Joshua's prayer and fought so mightily for his people. But that's not all. We see in verses 16 to 27 then, uh, the shocking encouragement of God's judgment, which we don't naturally think of encouragement and judgment going together, but that's exactly what happens in this section here. Uh, we see the execution of the five kings who supposedly led this fight. Uh, but where are these five kings but hiding in a cave 20 miles away at Makeda? 
And Joshua has them sealed up there until the fighting is over and they return with the troops to provide justice on these five kings. And Joshua calls for the commanders to put their feet on the necks of these kings as a symbol of what God would do to all of Israel's enemies. Meant to be an encouragement to them, as we see according to verse 25, where Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Sounds like similar language that God and people have spoken before, right? This idea of being strong and courageous, not being frightened and dismayed. In other words, this is meant to encourage God's people as they continue in the fight, knowing that God has their best interests in mind. And this leads finally to the last movement in verses 28 to 43, where we saw the total destruction of God's enemies. If you were to read through this section here, you would see one by one the cities of southern Canaan fall at the hand of the Israelites. Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, Debir, every single one, one after the other, in one swooping conquest, all these cities go down. So much so that we read in verse 42, Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And thus the chapter ends having showcased the amazing power of Israel's warrior God. So naturally that leads us to ask the question, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Yahweh is a warrior and a fighter God, even for his people thousands of years later, even today. And so I want to unpack that for you the rest of our time this morning, uh, to be able to better understand what this warrior God is like and what it looks like for us as his people. So I want to give you six points to ponder here this morning as we unpack the rest of our passage First point is this, I want you to see how the Bible provides a complete and balanced description of God. The Bible provides a complete and balanced description of God. And I think that that's important as we look at this story and think about what it means that God is a warrior. And when I say complete, I'm not saying complete in the sense that it tells us everything there is to know about God or everything that we would certainly want to know about God, but complete in the sense that the Bible says that God's divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that we need to know about God. He has given to us. And it's balanced in that it helps us see the multifaceted nature of God at the same time. You see, too often we live in a world where it feels like we sometimes have this tension of like we need to choose what type of God we're actively serving. Even sometimes you hear people talk about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. Uh, Are we serving a God who is loving and gracious and patient and compassionate? Or are we serving a God who is angry and powerful and vengeful and you go on and on, all powerful, right? Which is it? And the thing is, the Bible says yes to all of that, right? This is where we see that God is all these things harmoniously. None of these things work apart from the other. In fact, a lot of times these things must go together. 
The fact that God is just is driven from the fact that God is loving. You cannot have justice apart from God being loving towards something. That demands justice. You cannot have the fact that God is wrathful towards sin apart from the fact that God is a holy God who is separate from sin. It's not one or the other. It's completely in balance working together for good. But certainly today, I want you to walk away knowing that the God that you serve is indeed a warrior who is a fighter, but at the same time, as we see from this scripture here, is also good. That you can be a warrior and good at the same time. This is the truth that little Lucy and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe learned in her encounter with the beavers in Narnia when they're talking about Aslan the lion. All right, we, were, we were listening to the story with the girls the other day for the first time. And this interaction where the beavers are talking about Aslan and his might and his power as a lion. And, and Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, well, oh gosh, if he's a lion, like, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, well, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And that makes all the difference, church. When we think about our God being a warrior, being a fighter, but being good, oh man, that makes all the difference for God's people knowing that their God is a warrior who fights for them, but that is driven by the fact that he is good that he is consistent with his character, in particular the fact that he is passionate about his people. But with this, we also must see the other side of it. We must also understand that it's good that God is for his people, but simultaneously at the, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, it is a terrible thing to be an enemy of this God. Because God is a warrior who fights for his people, it would be a terrible thing to line up as uh, teams do against each other on the field of, of combat, right? And to line up seeing yourself facing off against this God, realizing that you are not on his side. Scripture does not use soft language when it comes to your standing before God, especially prior to him saving you. If you were to look at the language of Romans chapter 5, Romans 5.1 begins with the idea that we have peace with God, which means... There was a time when we were not at peace with God. We were at war with God. And he unpacks that later on in Romans 5 verses 9 and 10 where we learned that the wrath of God, his anger towards our sin was upon us. We were not considered uh, friends with God. We were not even considered uh, neutral towards God. No, we were considered to be enemies, opposed to him. We lacked peace. We deserved wrath. We were, we were labeled as an enemy. And such is the case for any of you here today who have yet to put your faith in God's plan of salvation that has been offered to you in Jesus Christ. Uh, scripture is not soft in that language describing you as an enemy of God. His wrath is being currently aimed at you because of your sin. And yet, and yet, listen to me, God has graciously offered you the terms of surrender even today. To lay down your weapons, to lay down your pride, to lay down your self-reliance and rebellion, all those things, and surrender to him. And to trust in Christ. 
to trust in God's plan for deliverance that he has freely offered to you even today. If only you would take it. We must be reminded of the words of the American theologian Jonathan Edwards who reminds us that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That we must consider the fearful danger that we are in if we are uh, lining up opposed to God. That if that is us, we must, by the grace of God, run, flee, repent, and run to Christ. We must understand that it is a terrible thing to be an enemy of God. But for those who have put their trust in God, who are following God by faith, who are trusting in his plan of deliverance that he has afforded to us in Christ Jesus, we must be reminded of this this morning, that God helps his people fight the good fight of faith. While we may not be engaged in the same type of combat against the Amorite kings and the fight for a promised land, I think we can all agree that we are engaged still in a spiritual war, are we not? That scripture speaks that we are fighting against our sin, that we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, as in the physical sense of war, but we are fighting against the spiritual forces of evil, according to Ephesians 6. Not to mention, as we discussed a few weeks ago, life itself is often a battle of trust, isn't it? It's a battle to keep the faith when life is hard, when suffering abounds, when trials and hardships are presented as the opposition. You know, some of you need to be reminded today that God is for you, but for others of you, you, you believe that truth, you understand that God is for you, but you just are struggling to see what does that look like in the midst of life when it's really hard. You're like the father in Mark 9 who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, what, what am I missing here? How is it that God is fighting for my good even when life is hard? So what does it mean that God still fights for his people today? Well, I want you to consider the triple threats that God gives you in his triune nature. You see, what does it look like? It means that you have God as your heavenly father, first of all. I've talked about this now, that your status has completely changed. You are no longer considered an enemy, but you are considered a friend. You are considered an ally. Even more importantly in Scripture, you, you are considered a child who has been adopted and brought into God's family. That itself changes your mindset when faced with hardships that God is for you, certainly. But it's not just the fact that God is your Heavenly Father. It's also the fact that you have Jesus as your mediator and your advocate. Think about what Hebrews 4.16 says. With Christ, we have a sympathetic high priest who we can come to, that we can receive grace from in our time of need. He cares for us. According to 1 John 2, he stands as our advocate, our righteous advocate, so that when we're wrestling with sin and we are wrestling with thoughts that we're not good enough, we can't win the fight, we remember that we have an advocate who stands before the Father as our righteous replacement. And representative who reminds us that it is not because of our good works that we even earned it in the first place, but because of what Christ has done for us. And in that, we are also reminded that Jesus Christ, as our warrior, has defeated already the power of sin and death. And yes, we will still struggle with sin in this life. Yes, we may still die in this life, but the fullness of that promise is still yet to come. And God will still bring it to fruition because Jesus Christ has accomplished it for us. But I want to get even more practical for a moment 
It's not just that God is your father. It's not just that Jesus is your advocate and your mediator. It means you also have the Holy Spirit as your helper. And church, that is the secret weapon. Did you know that? That God has given you the secret weapon in his Holy Spirit that resides in the hearts of every single one of you who believe. I think back to what Jesus said in John 13 to 17 in that upper room discourse where he's talking with his disciples right before he's about to to leave and he's telling them, I'm about to depart from you. I'm about to leave this earth. You're no longer going to have me. And as you can imagine, the disciples are feeling worried and anxious and fearful about what that means. This guy that they've spent all this time with is now leaving them. And he has the gall to say, even within that, it's actually better that I go. It's better for you that I don't stay here, but it is better that I go because then I can send you the helper. I can send you my spirit. And what we learn about the spirit, even in the context of of John's gospel there, is that this spirit is the very instrument God uses to spark faith, not just initially, but continually when we're struggling, when we're weak in faith. The spirit is there to do all things necessary to strengthen and uphold us in the fight. The spirit causes us to remember God's truth, the weapon that God has given us of his word, what God has spoken to encourage our hearts, to strengthen us, to uphold us, to fight against uh, doubt and all kinds of things that may wage war against us. The Spirit helps us to fight against those things, but even more importantly, the Spirit gives us peace. When we're not feeling so strong and courageous, and I gotta believe that the disciples were not feeling very strong and courageous that night when Jesus told them he was leaving. But he promises that this spirit will give peace to uphold his people who seek to follow him by faith. So be of good courage today, dear church. Your God still fights. And he has given you all that you need to fight the good fight of faith. And one of those most important weapons that God has given you is indeed prayer. And that's where we must be reminded this morning that we must never cease to marvel at the power and the privilege that has been afforded to us in prayer. We saw in chapter 10 the amazing way that God answered Joshua's prayer. And it was not just that God listened to the prayer of a man because God had listened to prayers many times in Scripture. Guys like Abraham and Moses, God had responded to such prayers. But it is seen in the amazing nature of how God responded to Joshua's prayer. Did you see that? In other words, Joshua's request was not too big for God to handle. So I dare ask you, church member, do you see prayer as amazing today? Can you even begin to comprehend its power? It was seen as an amazing thing that God listened to Joshua's plea that day. And yet for every believer today, we are reminded daily that we have free, unhindered access to God the Father at all times. And we can come to him with anything. And he delights in that. He invites us to do that. As we just discussed, we have a perfect intercessor, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who stands between us and God so that our requests can be heard, they can be made known to God, and that he cares about them. (laughs) 
Just notice how receptive God was to this request by Joshua and the people. Because if you think back, what happened in chapter 9? Why? How did the people fail in chapter 9 with the Gibeonites? If you remember, they failed because they were self-reliant, right? Verse 14 of chapter 9, they did not seek counsel from the Lord. In other words, they were guilty of not coming to the Lord with these things. And now what do we see in chapter 10? They're coming to the Lord with their things and notice how God doesn't respond to them. You don't see God, when Joshua offers up this big, mighty prayer for their deliverance, you don't see God going, well, well, well. Look who needs me now. It's about time. No, God doesn't act like that. God's not vengeful even in, his, in the way that we come to him with our prayers. We're reminded of James 1.5 where we see that if anyone lacks wisdom and humbly comes to the Lord, God is gracious to provide. God is gracious to give without reproach. He's not annoyed by us coming to him. He delights for us to come to him. In fact, we were reminded of in Hebrews 4.16 that he wants us to come to him so that we can provide grace. He can provide grace in time of need. And so we must see the important role that prayer plays in our spiritual fight today. After all, prayer is one of the clearest expressions of our dependence upon God. Prayer says, we need God. We need you, Lord. We can't do this apart from you. And I love that Joshua prays. Think about this. Joshua prays even after God told him what was going to happen. Even after God told him the victory was won. Do you notice that? Verse 8, God said, I will defeat your enemies. And yet we see Joshua still praying for God to accomplish that. In other words, faith does not remove our responsibility. God's promises do not remove our dependence. God accomplishes what he promises through our obedience and our dependence. In other words, faith still acts. Perhaps you've heard people talk about that with prayer before, like, well, I don't understand why I, why, why I need to pray. God's going to do what he's going to do, right? Well, of course God's going to do what he's going to do, but guess what? He invites you into that process. He invites you to respond to him in faith and call upon him. That's how God uses such things. And think about how that strengthens God's people as a result. So see today the power and privilege that has been afforded to you through this great weapon of prayer. Fifth, deliverance is a total work of God that he will bring to completion. While Israel is actively engaged in the battle here, the author makes it quite clear that this is God's fights. This is God's fight. This whole engagement depends on how God will act. And the answer becomes quite clear throughout this chapter. He sustains. He strengthens. He confuses. He throws boulders. He works miracles. He listens. He overcomes cities. He fights. God does those things. Yes, deliverance is God's work that he begins and he completes. And though we may be participants 
along the way, it still depends upon God who fights and works through us. We're reminded of that in Philippians 1, 6, where we are reminded that the work that God begins, the good work that God begins in the hearts of his people, he will bring to completion. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reminds us that salvation is a gift of God, not because of works, not because of anything we have done, not that we would boast, but because of what God has done by his grace. And if we could go back to the upper room in John 16, 33, which is on your cover verse this morning of your worship folder, we're reminded where Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation, you will have hardships, you will have suffering. But take heart because I have overcome the world. I have done it. It's not because of your works, but because of what I have done for you. Final victory in this world will not be due to any work that we have done, but rather it will be because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And as such, church, let's end with this. We can be strong and courageous, knowing that God's final victory is certain. That was the encouragement offered to the Israelites that day when they witnessed the execution of the five kings of the Amorites. It was a sure sign to them of the victory that God was bringing on their behalf. So church, in a world that is full of wickedness, of atrocities, of, of suffering, we can rest assured knowing that the final page has already been written. Literally, you can go read it. The final page has been written for you so that you know how the story ends. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Or at least it should. should change everything with our mindsets. Makes me think of when we watch movies in our household and naturally if you're watching movies with uh, the girls, there's going to come times when you're going to have a, an antagonist, a, a bad guy, and that bad guy is going to start to uh, be pretty successful. He's going to gain a lot of steam, a lot of momentum. He's going to do some things that seem pretty overwhelming and intimidating. And it's at those points that our girls can get a little bit nervous uh, they can start to get a little bit fearful. They can, you can see it on their face. They're starting to look away, wondering what, what's going to happen. And it's in those moments as parents, we can look at them and we've, we ask this question numerous times. And they, they know it's coming. It's the question of this. What do we know typically happens in these situations? And they know that the answer in those situations is that the good guy wins. Right? Even in the midst of what they're seeing before their eyes in that moment, the good guy wins. And the thing is, movies that sometimes is the case, maybe sometimes it's not the case. But the truth for us as Christians, having the word of God, having the very sufficient, fully inspired word of God that is complete, we know that's true. And that changes everything about the mindset and how we live in the world today. Even when we look at the world, when we see everything that's happening, when we see the sufferings, when we see the atrocities, when we see the devastation, and we're tempted to think that it looks like evil is winning. We as God's people need to lead the charge in the way that we respond with the hope of Jesus Christ because we have been given something that the rest of the world does not have. 
we have the assurance, because our God is a warrior, that his victory is certain. So take heart today, dear church, for our warrior God has overcome this world, has he not? Let's pray. Father, it's with this in mind that we do ask that you would strengthen and encourage the hearts of your people. Father, it changes everything to know that you are a warrior who still fights for your people today. You are not indifferent, you are not distant, but you are intimately involved in the affairs of your people because you care. You care so much that you sent your spirit to reside in our hearts to help us fight the good fight of faith, to wage war against the, the things of this world, including our own sinful flesh, and Lord, to strengthen and uphold us so that we can be vehicles of hope to a world that has no hope. We carry with ourselves the message and the truth of deliverance and salvation that is afforded in Jesus Christ that this world so desperately needs. And so I pray that as your people, we would help lead the charge. That we would help this dark and decaying world see the light that is offered to them in our warrior God. Would you be pleased to do that in the hearts of your people in this congregation here today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.